This is an AMI podcast. Are you ready? Let's go. From AMI Central. Now circling in the neutral zone. Here's the pitch on the lake. 36 yards for the win. This. Here comes a big chance. The shot is. Is this the tiger? The neutral zone. This is as good as it gets. Now, here's your host, two-time Paralympian, Brock Richardson. How's it going? It's time for another edition of The Neutral Zone. I am indeed your host, Brock Richardson. And first of all, shout out to uh, AMI's coverage of the Canadian Blind Hockey Championships for 2022. It was the first ever women's game that had 30 athletes in it. When it started, there was two women athletes and so there was a big jump team uh black came out with the 4-1 victory and credit to our very own claire buchanan who did color commentary for the very first time in her career and also shout out mike ross nico cardarelli jeff ryman and our very own matt agnew for putting on a wonderful broadcast and we will return on sunday for the bronze and gold medal game and Cameron and I will be along for the ride there. Joining me this week is Josh Watson. Josh, how are you? I am good, Brock. It's Friday afternoon. We got lots of sports going on and we get to talk about it. So it's going to be an awesome day. Yes. And Cameron, should we apologize now or later that the audience has to listen to us not only now, but on Sunday as well? Well, I'm not going to apologize whatsoever. I think that they are more than happy to hear us. Uh, and if we were on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I think they would absolutely love that. So I'm going to apologize for absolutely nothing. Knock, knock. Andy Frank, 24 hours, seven days a week on the neutral zone. Uh, let's see how that goes over. And this will be the test to see if he did listen to this week's show, because I'm sure he'll send me a LOL, yeah, right, on the 24 <laughs> hours, seven days a week. But we'll see as the show progresses. He normally listens on podcasts, but it's worth the pitch. Let's get into our headlines for this week's. The NHL trade deadline has come and gone. Uh, the day saw 26 trades, 40 players, and 21 picks. And we will be chatting more about the trade deadline with uh, Justin Bourne later on in the show. Uh, I was really impressed with Florida and a couple of trades that they made uh, in order to get Sherratt um, as well as getting Sheru. Uh, um, I think they were kind of, uh, if not uh, the winner of the trade deadline, I think they were certainly up there. And I really liked uh, Tampa Bay uh, because they're going for it every year. They gave up a couple of first-round picks uh, to uh, get their third line in order. So kudos to them as well. The uh, Atlantic Division is just becoming the division of death. So it's going to be a dogfight when we get to the playoffs to see who comes out of that division. Newly acquired third baseman Matt Chapman and the Toronto Blue Jays have agreed to a two-year, $25 million extension. This is in addition to the year we already have him. So he will be a Toronto Blue Jay for three years total. When you can solidify an athlete like Chapman at a position that we desperately need for not just the short term, but the long term. This can only set up for great things in the future. Let's go Blue Jays, April 8th. 
The Canadian men's national soccer team played a qualifying game for Qatar last night in San Jose, Costa Rica. The team fell 1-0 to Costa Rica on what is arguably a suspect red card delivered to Canadian player Mark anthony Kay. I watched this game from start to finish. It was a tough one for the Canadians. They were on the road. They were in a stadium filled with 35,000 screaming fans. Majority of them were, were Costa Rican fans. And it was just, it was a totally unfortunate play that resulted in Mark anthony Kay being sent off after two quick yellow cards, which resulted in a red. They do still have an opportunity to clinch a spot in Qatar 2022 when they host the Jamaican national team at BMO Field in Toronto on Sunday. All they need is a win or a draw, and they are in the tournament for the first time since 1986. Go Canada, go. And I was really impressed with the game last night, the soccer game as well. And the Canadians, they just didn't have any ball luck at the end of the day. So uh, hopefully they can wrap it up uh, at BMO Field. Uh, Rafael Nadal will be sidelined for four to six weeks because of a rib injury. At this point, it is too early to tell whether he will be able to compete at the French Open, which is scheduled for May 22nd to June 6th. Those are your headlines for this week. Let's check on our Twitter polls. Would you consider the Paralympic Games a success for Canada? I'm very happy to report that it was a unanimous yes. This week's question is, how did you take in this year's NHL trade deadline? On television, on social media, or not at all? Cast your votes at our Twitter handle, which will be given out in a bit on the program. Coming up next, we're going to speak to NHL on Sportsnet analyst and Fan 590 radio personality Justin Bourne about the trade deadline, which has come and gone. Who made big moves? Who didn't? We'll find out next here on The Neutral Zone. Stay with us. We'll be right back. And welcome back to the Neutral Zone AMI broadcast booth. And we are set to get this ball game underway. The first pitch brought to you by Brock Richardson's Twitter account at NeutralZoneBR. First pitch, strike. And hey, gang, why not strike up a Twitter chat with Claire Buchanan for the Neutral Zone? Find her at NeutralZoneCB. And there's a swing and a chopper out to second base. Right at Claire, she picks up the ball, throws it over to first base for a routine out. And fans, there is nothing routine about connecting with Cam and Josh from the Neutral Zone. At Neutral Zone, Cam J and at J Watson 200. Now that's a winning combination. And this Oregon interlude is brought to you by AMI-audio on Twitter. Get in touch with the Neutral Zone. Type in at AMI-audio. Welcome back to the Neutral Zone right here on AMI-audio. I'm your host, Brock Richardson, alongside Cam Jenkins and Josh Watson. Justin Bourne comes to us from Toronto, Ontario, and is part of NHL on Sportsnet and also works 
on the radio side for the Fan 590. And he joins us now to chat about the trade deadline. Justin, welcome to the program, and thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate you having me. Justin, if we can just start off uh, with you telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Sportsnet, for those that might not know. Sure. Um, I guess a little bit of background is dad played in the NHL. I played some pro hockey myself, coached a little bit in the American League. And when I was done with my own playing days, uh, I came on over to the uh, the media side of things. So worked at the score and the athletic before winding up at the uh, the place I wanted to be at Sportsnet. So now I uh, break down uh, a lot of NHL stuff, a lot of Leaf stuff. Do uh, you know? I host Real Kipper and Born with Nick Kiprios and write some articles and show up on TV and everywhere Sportsnet tells me to be talking hockey. That's awesome. Uh, for trade deadline day, which is a huge, well, it should be a huge national holiday here in Canada. Uh, can you maybe let the listeners know what your schedule is on trade deadline day? Yeah, it's, you know, it varies year to year. What's great is, um, you know, something they've had me doing specifically was breaking down individual players. Like um, I did a segment on Nick Paul and Andrew Kopp and Claude Giroux this year, but knowing those were guys who would be moved or uh, moved on deadline day or before, I was able to pre-record a lot of stuff. So I, I went to, you know, did some work ahead of time preparing the videos and the, the stats. And then I went to the studio to record those. So I didn't have to do as much in studio that day. Um, instead, I just showed up on uh, our station in Vancouver and Calgary in the morning, um, prepared for our radio show just by reading all of the transactions around the NHL and, you know, their assumed effects you know we uh we had our radio show three to five i was on the drive time show from five to five thirty um and, and just some uh, some other radio in the evening so i try to spend as much time taking information as i do uh you know expelling it because i find a lot of times if if you're if you're talking more than you're listening you're probably not saying very many helpful things so um an under unseen part of the job is how much time i spend reading and taking in information for when I do, I am physically, you know, appearing on radio or TV. That sounds like some good advice. Now the Canadian team did, excuse me, teams did a lot of their work before the deadline. I'm curious, which Canadian teams do you think did best either before deadline day or on deadline day this year? Yeah. You know, I really liked what Calgary did. Um, you know, I thought that they identified some needs early on with Tyler Toffoli and a guy who was a good fit with uh, Sutter and some of the players on the team. Uh, the, the Cali Yarncroft one is uh, really interesting, right? Like the guys from uh, Yavle, Sweden, as is Jacob Markstrom, as is Elias Lindholm, who's his cousin. So he's a guy who they all know very well there and fits right into the, the kind of Sutter mold of, reliable two-way veteran guy um, can play the game a lot of different ways and has some skills. So I liked what they did. And then I liked what the Leafs did too. You know, I, I think Mark Giordano is a stabilizing force for them. You know, they had question marks with the Muzzin injury and uh, obviously they moved on from Travis Dermott. So an addition like that, a guy who can play 20 minutes a night is, is huge at a place that they needed help. So a nice addition and Colin Blackwell should be good for them too. So I, I thought both Calgary and Toronto did a nice job. And Justin, uh, do you think that there were any Canadian teams that you felt didn't do enough at the deadline? 
Well, I don't know if I would say that Vancouver didn't do enough, but, uh, you know, there was so much talk about their players. Is Besser going to go? Is JT Miller going to go? Connor Garland going to go? You know, we heard these huge names and then presumed what the, the packages would be like on those players. And then they never materialized. The one guy they did trade, Tyler Mott, I like. He's a good player. And they, they only got a fourth rounder for him. So they didn't have to do anything. You know, they're kind of still in a playoff hunt a little bit if you squint. Um, and all the guys that they didn't trade, they still have under contract for another year. They can move them at the draft if they decide that they want to do a rebuild. But I definitely, you know, going into the deadline, I looked at the Canucks as a team and went, oh, boy, let's see what they do. Uh, and they did roughly nothing. We're joined by Justin Bourne, who is part of NHL on Sportsnet and the Fan 590. And you're listening to the Neutral Zone here on AMI-audio. I'm your host, Brock Richardson, joined by Cam Jenkins and Josh Watson. And we're talking everything trade deadline. Now, if we switch gears to the teams that are south of the border, I was surprised to see Marc-Andre Fleury get moved to Minnesota. Did that surprise you at all? Yeah, no, it definitely did. But, you know, to me, it was more of a a process of elimination than him seeking out the Minnesota wild. You know, he had a full no move, so he could kind of dictate where he would go. And the teams that wanted him were the type of places he didn't want to be. You know, he, he didn't want to go to Canada, obviously with the taxes and the pressure and um, you know, those things didn't appeal to him as much. And he didn't want to go play for the Washington capitals who probably need a goalie, but has been the penguins bitter rival. He obviously still sees himself as a penguin, his family's in Chicago, so Minnesota was, you know, it's an hour skip on a, on a flight over there. So I think he stayed close. He, he went to a team that needed him, that has a chance to compete. So it was more of a process of elimination thing. One of those ones that um, I actually regret not doing some Sherlock Holmes and figuring out, hey, you know who would make sense for them? Because I never saw that coming either. But once it happened, it does make some sense. Now, it seemed that the arms race, uh, this trade deadline, or at least leading up to it, happened in the Atlantic Division. Uh, do you think that that's going to be the toughest division to come out of uh, once the playoffs start? Yeah, well, man, I mean, who, who? there's no easy path. Like, even if you're Tampa Bay, you're like, we're going to have to beat two of, you know, Toronto, Florida, Boston. Like, there's there's no clear way through. And to your point about the arms race, you know, Giroux and Sherrod are big ads for Florida. Uh, I liked um, Paul was a, a really nice ad, I thought, for Tampa Bay in particular. And Boston getting Hampus Lindholm, like everyone got better. So, you know, I'm Toronto-centric and our Leafs, our show three to five is a Leafs show. Um, and, and they got better. Like Giordano and Blackwell helped. But I, it's tough to look around the division and think that they made up ground. You know, it, it feels a little bit like uh, treading water. Uh, the whole division gets better and, um, you know, not, not sure they made a whole lot of headway. Now, normally we would ask you to tell us who you think are, uh, who you think the Stanley Cup champion might be, but we're not going to do that today. We're just going to ask, uh, what do you think the top three picks to win the Stanley Cup might be? Yeah, you know, I, it's impossible to look at that back-to-back lightning team and, and not think that they're in the mix again, right? Like, they, they've got a formula there. they got a great decor and a goalie, and it all starts there for them. So Tampa's still the team to beat. Uh, Colorado, unbelievable team. Um, you know, they added Josh Manson, who I really like. Uh, for them in particular, who they, you know, we're looking for a little bit more playoff grit. Uh, and then, you know, maybe a sneaky one just because I picked Tampa coming out of the Atlantic. Could be the Carolina Hurricanes. They they beat up on Tampa last night, 3-1. Uh, I think they had, you know, over 40 shots on the Bolts. 
you know, they're, they're kind of a in the driver's seat to win the president's trophy this year. And you hardly ever hear their name as a real cup contender. Well, I don't see why not. I, you know, it's Freddie Anderson has been one of the best goaltenders in the league this year for them. They can score solid decor, great coaching. Uh, Carolina could find their way through the Metro. And by the time they get to the conference final might be seeing a Tampa or a Florida team. That's pretty beleaguered from going through two tough rounds. So Carolina would be the, the third in that group for me. Okay. And just we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the the Western Conference there. Uh, we talked a bit about Vancouver, but I noticed that um, I think Arizona's in the West, so we didn't see a guy like Jacob Chikrin, uh move. I guess that was partly due to injury, but what do you make of what happened in the West this year? You know, there's just not as many good teams, you know, authentically good teams. I thought you had a lot of, of teams that felt like they were good enough that they didn't want to be sellers, but not good enough that they wanted to really move future assets to buy either. You know, you saw Winnipeg kind of tread water, right? Like they, they got rid of cop, but they brought back uh, Appleton, you know, and, and the same thing in Vancouver where they lost Mott, but they brought in Dermot, they moved out, out Hamannick, like they kind of just stayed where they were. And, and the Oilers kind of had, you know, tepid ads, uh, Brett Kulak and uh, someone else up front there. Oh, Derek Broussard. So and I just thought there was a lot of teams that felt like they aren't good enough to really go for it. So they didn't push their chips in, but they kind of didn't want to get worse either. So half measures, I think, from a lot of teams in the West with uh, Colorado remaining as the cream of the crop. Yeah, and you know, Justin, I was really interested in that harmonic trade. Um, it seems like uh, there was a, a few reports about him and uh, just kind of a what kind of a player he, he is, or maybe a bit about his character. Um, do you want to comment anything uh, about that and that trade, and maybe why that one went down? Yeah, you know, I think there's. There's a couple of reasons, you know, we'd heard for years that he wanted to move near his family. I think he's a Manitoba guy. Um, You know, this seems to get him to one of the few teams you could call nearer, I guess, to, to Winnipeg. Um, You know, and and on the other hand too, you know, they did have some issues, you know, he didn't participate in the bubble, but seemed to have reasons for that. It's tough to get a sense. He he clearly has a lot going on off the ice and, and values that part of his life as much as the hockey part. You know, for me, for go him going to Ottawa, like he's an NHL player. You got to have NHL players on your team. And the Senators, I saw some people criticizing them for almost looking like buyers in the position that they're in. But he just can't be awful. So hopefully it's a good marriage. He goes somewhere that he's happy. Ottawa gets a guy who can, you know, log 18 minutes a night for them and they're happy with him. Three million bucks. And for Vancouver it also, they get a guy in German who I think is as good or better than Hamannick and He's at half the price for them, so it made sense from the Canucks viewpoint. Okay, I've got I've got one for you, and and mine is one that we've talked about so much for so many years of who has more pressure between Edmonton and Toronto, and and some of that could be Toronto and the media, and you know how how heavy we are. But is there more pressure on Edmonton, or is it squarely on Toronto? Well, I think it's a fair question. Like the Oilers. You can argue that the Oilers have more pressure just based on McDavid because if McDavid and Dreisaitl don't win or aren't competitive, you know, you run the risk of of those guys saying, okay, well, we're not happy here. Or we, you know, we want out or whatever. I, it's 
there is not a limit to how many times you can miss playoffs with elite, elite players. And we heard Elliot Friedman all year saying that about the Oilers. They can't miss playoffs. They can't miss playoffs. And I think that's what the he's alluding to. Like, you've got to keep McDavid happy. So that's big pressure. On the other hand, with the Leafs, it's like, you know, there's big pressure there too, and expectations are high. You know, Austin Matthews only has a couple seasons left on his deal. If he's not happy, it's not all that different than McDavid. He'd just be more likely to ride it to the end of his shorter deal, I think. But still, there's there's immense pressure in both places. Uh, however you want to deem it, worse, more or less, whatever. There's no doubt that those are those are the two cities that are feeling it the most as they head towards the postseason. As we look at both of those teams, you know, um, Toronto is pretty well squarely in in a playoff position. Edmonton, if they get there, who's more likely to get out of the first round, Toronto or Edmonton? I think you like the Oilers just because of who they're going to play. You know, the I just think if you're in Toronto, the most likely first round matchup is Tampa Bay. I think right now there's a 35 percent chance they see the bolts in the first round, which I'm not sure you could scour the league and find a, a tougher opponent. So, you know, the the Oilers likely to to not see a an entire pushover. But, you know, if it ends today in the Pacific Division, I think Calgary wins it. And then you got Kings Oilers in round one. And I think I'd, I'd be picking the Oilers there. So. Uh, just based on path and not really a reflection on the teams, it, it looks like Edmonton for me. And even even Calgary has kind of, kind of an quote unquote easier path, if you can say that. I mean, I mean, the Atlantic Division is the group of death. And as a Leaf fan, a league wide fan, really, but as a Leaf fan, anybody but Boston, please, like anybody but Bo- Boston <laughs> would be just wonderful. Like. No, you want Boston. You want yeah. Boston. You gotta you want to exercise dragon. those demons. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You want them. You, you exercise the demons. You're not sure. What, what Jeremy Swayman's played like 15 NHL games. He's going to be their goalie. I know he's been very good, but yeah, it's. I mean, there's no easy team, but yeah, I, you'd be okay if it ends up being Boston. Oh man, I guess I'm just having complete nightmares. As I, why you know? Hey, they're well earned yeah, nightmares. Yeah. Totally. Justin, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to do this. We greatly appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. Thanks for having me, guys. That was Justin Bourne talking to us all things trade deadline and moving towards the playoffs, which is coming ever so quickly. Coming up next, we're going to have a discussion regarding moral questions. Today, we're going to explore the conversation of classification in para-sports. How does that affect people? We discuss that and more coming up on the second half of the Neutral Zone. Stay with us. a message for the neutral zone call now 1-866-509-4545 and don't forget to give us permission to use your message on the air let's get ready to leave a voicemail I've got to say, I um, I still don't have any uh, desire to play the uh, Boston Bruins in, uh, <laughs> in in the first round. I, I no, I'm just not. I'm not exercising those demons. I appreciate Justin Bourne saying, you know, like you want to exercise them. 
But no, I would rather, rather play not. Tampa. You'd rather play Tampa? No, no, man. We're gonna get into first place. This is what's gonna happen. It's gonna. We're gonna get into first place, and then it will not uh, be Tampa or Boston or anyone. It'll be someone else. It'll be one of the wild card teams. And with that, I'll wake up from my dream that I am dreaming about in Leafland at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't talk to you about this. Let's talk about something else. <laughs> All righty then. I'll have to bring that up another day. Is basically what you just told me, noted in my brain. Um, <laughs> it's time for another edition of Moral Question. And this is something we have explored over the last little while. And it's where we kind of have questions on our mind that make us kind of go, Hmm, let's have a discussion. So today's topic is classification in sport and whether or not classification in parasport can discourage people from playing sports in that community. So let's start by giving you kind of a rundown for those that may not know why classification is important. And I will kind of give a rundown and then I'm going to get the guys to chime in and if there was anything I missed. They can uh, chime in from there. But basically, classification is important because when you have individuals with varying disabilities and varying challenges, that can make it challenging to play parasports. And so we want to have equal opportunity for individuals to play in their appropriate class classification. So people are alike to them in their physical limitations and hopefully that makes for some equality in classification and as we have this discussion you're going to learn that maybe at times there's not so much of that equality in classifications because classification is very subjective to individuals who you know are doctors and nurses and people that specialize in disabilities but it can be very subjective overall uh Either of you want to add anything to what I said about why classification is important? I think think you did a good job. Yeah, I agree. Um, As you said, it's basically just a way of ensuring that people with similar abilities are grouped together for competition. Yeah. And now we're going to talk about some stories of our own <laughs> classification, which is going to make you question everything I just said, because sometimes th- these are the points where people go, is this really equal uh, to me and someone else? So, Josh, why don't you kick it off with your classification story and we'll kind of go around the uh, proverbial table and then have a further discussion. Sure. Um, In my case, classification really applies more to my track and field career rather than sledge hockey, because in in sledge hockey, it's basically one classification. Whereas in track and field, you can have 50 classes, you can have 30 classes, uh, you can have 40 classes. And, And what those are, are basically 30 classes would be your people with cerebral palsy, much like yourself, Brock. The 40 classes would be people with impairments, either amputations to arms or legs. And the 50 classes are your spinal cord injury classes. So that is where I fall in. When I first began as a uh, track and field athlete, I 
came out to practice and met my coach who had been my hockey coach prior uh, to joining the track and field team. So I knew him well. And he said, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure you're going to classify as this athlete, but we'll, we'll know once you get to your first competition and go through the classification process. So the classification process consisted of an exam where you were asked to perform a bunch of different uh, movements so that the person doing the classification could see what you could do. And because of my spina bifida, I happened to have the ability to move my legs. So in the classifier's mind, that meant that I was a 57 class, which was basically a class for people who could stand and walk short distances. It was one step down from the most able of the classifications, which is 58. And so I thought about this and I said to myself, okay, I, I know my body. There's no way these little legs are going to support me if I try to stand up. But I really didn't have enough knowledge to be able to say to the classifier, no, I think you're wrong here and here's why. So I competed an entire season as a 57 class athlete against people who were in my opinion, much more able than I was. It wasn't until the following summer when I was reclassified at my coach's request that the classifiers actually did a physical examination of my body and figured out that the muscles I use to move my legs are not necessarily all present or they don't all function. And so they were able to determine that, in fact, I'm actually a 56 class, which is for people who have some leg movement, but not enough to stand or walk, and as a result, have to sit when they throw. And so I ended up in the right class and am happy and have been competing in that class ever since. Yeah, and for myself... Um... I remember when I was classified and uh, when I was classified, um, you know, I ended up being an F58, which is the, um, for lack of a better way to say it, the least disabled class. So, um, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I can walk fairly far and I can do, you know, quite a few things. So I understood why I was in that category. Um, uh, and this is where you're never going to have a perfect classification system because, I'm five foot nothing on a good day, maybe five foot two on a good day. And I was competing against people that were in F58s that uh, had more mobility than me. Um, like there was a person where, um, you know, his leg was amputated from uh, the knee down, um, but he had full use of all of his other muscles. Um, so an amputee was competing in a class and I have spina bifida and it affects a lot more of my, uh, muscles and who I am as a person. So, uh, you know, it was very challenging to be in that, um, classification, uh, to try to win events when, uh, you know, other people were uh, competing at provincial or national events because, um, like I could throw nowhere near, um, you know, uh, the person that I was talking about, or there was one event where I was uh, going against the Mexicans and, uh, you know, I would throw it maybe 13, 14 meters and they were like throwing it out. Like it was a Sunday 
walk in the park and that was like 50 meters and they probably could have thrown it a lot further if they wanted to as well. So um, I, I think the classification system uh, needs to be a, a little bit better to put people in categories um, that they're uh, competing uh, against uh, to more of their like. Um, saying that, the way I was able to um, kind of uh, get through it um, is, uh, you know, we're taught in parasports, it's all about the uh, personal best. And so it's all about the PB. So I just tried to get better myself. Um, and it didn't matter if other people were throwing a lot further than me. I just tried to have the attitude of I've got to make myself better and beat my personal bests. Yeah. Um, my story goes a bit um, in in all kinds of different directions. So I was classified as a bocce class two, which is the um, classification where you still throw the bocce ball, um, but you have significant more range of motion than your BC one uh, category. And I went to my, I made my first Ontario team as a BC two, which a lot of people were very surprised given uh, my limitations because I am in my own, you know, form fitted seat. It's very snug and not really, I don't really move. It's at times it's more comfortable than my own bed because it's molded uh, directly to my body. Um, so anyway, I made it to the national championships and I went into the classification room and they come behind me in my wheelchair, which is very hard to do on the best of days. And they put their hands on my shoulder and they moved me from side to side. And they said, oh, well, okay, you have upper body strength. And my father, who was the coach at the time, said, okay, can I suggest you look at something? And they said, sure. What's that? I, he said, I'm going to take him out of the chair and I'm going to place him on the chair, which had foam on either side of the chair. And I want you to physically see how much upper body strength he has or doesn't have. So my father lifted me out of the wheelchair, puts me on the chair, lets go of me. And within five seconds, I was on the floor on this padded um, situation. I did not hurt myself. <laughs> and the classifier looked at my father and went, oh, there is like zero upper body strength in in Brock at all and it's because in my form fitted seat I appear as though I have more upper body strength than I do because it is literally contoured to my own body and so I remember coming out of that classification and I was all upset because I didn't know I had no idea what this meant and you know coaches were coming up to me saying oh no this is a good thing you can make the national team and you could do all this and all these things but then that's good. And I was able to do that in Canada. But as I progressed into the international stage, the the difference and the understanding of what Bocce Class 1 is in Canada versus across the world is two very different things. And so for me, it was very much a challenge in that regard. But I did manage and it was tough. Uh, but But that just goes to show some of the differences with classification challenges. I'm curious to know from you guys whether or not you believe there is some truth that classification can discourage people from playing sports. Cameron? Yeah, like absolutely. If you don't have the, uh, uh, you know, the right attitude going into it, 
Um, I could have easily just said, you know, I'm in a F58 class and I'm competing against all of these people that are, uh, you know, not as disabled as I am and they're kicking my uh, you-know-what. And, you know, that can be very discouraging. Um, that's where you have to kind of take a look at it and say, okay, what do I want to get out of this? And for me, um, I wanted to, uh, you know, it was social for me, uh, meeting people and getting to know people. Um, that was a huge thing for me. And then just trying to do better than I did the day before, as I mentioned before, it's all about the PB. So, um, but yeah, I can see exactly where people, you know, get discouraged, uh, you know, because nobody likes to lose. Yeah, absolutely. It. We even have, especially in track and field, which is all I can really speak to, this idea of top of the class and bottom of the class, if you will. So a a classification has a certain set of standards that must be met. So as you were saying, Brock, for a certain class, you have to have upper body strength. Uh, In my case, it's You know, can you move your legs? Can you move your arms? Is there any impediment to that? And so you might have someone who is really high in, say, in my class, a, a 55 class, which is the class below me, or they might be really low in the 56 class. And so then the it's at the classifier's discretion. Well, do I put them in... The lower class where they're going to potentially dominate, or do I put them in the higher class where they might be, and I use this word in quotes, challenged more? And so you do you do see things like Cameron experienced, or uh, Cameron and I have a friend who in our own club had a fellow to compete against. They were the exact same classification, but if you looked at the two of them, you would say, uh, wait a minute. What you you two go against each other? You you've got an issue with your leg. He's got an issue with everything. Yeah, the whole side, right? And it was just one of those. That's how the classification system works. You and so if you're the bottom of that class and you're going up against somebody. It's one thing if you're going up against somebody from another club, another province, another country who's who's that much better than you, because international rules do vary and you'll you'll find exactly what uh, you were saying, Brock. But when you're competing with somebody in your own club and your abilities are vastly different and yet the classifier says you're the same classification, I can absolutely see how that would be frustrating if you are not the type of person to say, I'm going to focus on me and I'm going to focus on whether I'm getting better. Yeah. And it, and it does depend on what, what your aspirations are within the sport. I mean, as I said, uh, coming out of that classification room for me and learning that I was a BC one to me at 14 years old, that meant absolutely nothing. I was only focused on my my category at the time. I made the Ontario team and I was happy. And at the time, that's all I really felt that I could do year after year. And then I ended up winning the bronze medal at that same national championships where I had a classification change. And I I remember going away from that going, "Mm, maybe everyone's right. And I could make the national team. But certainly if you can't 
get out of your own province or out of your own club, that becomes the problem. And I want to get quick thoughts from you guys just kind of before we wrap uh, this segment. And Cameron, we'll start with you and then go over to Josh. Um, what do you think can be done differently with the classification system to make it more equal? Or is there not much we can do? Um, I don't know if there's a lot that you can do because there's already 58 different classifications. And then there's like subcategories within, you know, those 58 categories where some are blind, uh, some are, um, you know, amputees, some are CPs, um, uh, you know, spinal cord injury. And, you know, I, I just, I've always gotten into a discussion uh, when we've got into classifications and taking a look at the Olympics and the Paralympics. When you're looking at the Olympics, it is just whoever the fastest man or woman in the world is. And that's what they go by. In the Paralympics, they're very much about classifications because they, you know, want to get a lot of different people uh, competing. And I just wonder, um, you know, should it be the for the Paralympics, should it just be like they do with the Olympics and the fastest person wins? Whether it be, you know, into separate categories as well. So, yeah, like I've always wondered about that and, you know, thought about that and, um, yeah, I, and unless, and you can't have 120 different categories at the end of the day. Um, so I, I don't really think you can do anything to, uh, fix it. It would be very hard to, to fix things. I mean, I look at things and you've even got situations where a disability presents similarly to another one. So you might have someone with a spinal cord injury, but because of how that spinal cord injury is, they present like a person with CP. And so you have spinal cord people competing against CP people, and that can cause its own problems. So it's very, very challenging, and there's no perfect system. I I just think any system you have, there's going to be... Problems, And on top of that, there's going to be exploitations as well, which is a topic that I believe we've already covered. So we won't and, get into that again. And when you add the human element into making these classifications and classifying people, there unfortunately can be human error for one and judgment for the other in the sense of, and what i mean by judgment is it's it's a person's one person could look at the same situation and 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 be on board but then you add you know five or six people and each of those people could have their own opinion on why this person should be here or there or whatever the case is so when you add the human element to it that then becomes in and of itself a problem and i'm not sure whether adding robots or AI would be a thing, because that, that's a stretch. But we have to understand that when you add he humans to make these decisions that are subjective, then you're going to have some error and some mistakes moving forward. So I think it's not a perfect system, as you guys point out, but there are definitely some flaws in making it equal for all 
abilities to play in their appropriate categories. With that, we're going to take a break here on the Neutral Zone. We're going to touch base on the uh, new collective bargaining agreement and some of the rules that will be in effect. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You know that you've had a decent discussion on the uh, previous segment when it carries over through the entire commercial break and Matt has to take us off the back channel in order to get back on the live channel. So if you missed that conversation, go back and check it out. It was a good one for sure. Uh, Let's chat a little bit about the MLB and how they finally have reached a new collective bargaining agreement. Here's what we know with the nuts and bolts of the collective bargaining agreement as it sits here. So your minimum salary up to 700000 which is an increase of 22.2% from last year. The pre-arbitration bonus rules are a $50 million pool that is allocated when you win the Cy Young Award or MVP, you will get $2.5 million or or, or $1.75 million for second place. And then it just kind of breaks down from there throughout the $50 million, depending on where you place. So the players are pretty happy with that, I think. The other one is the expanded playoffs, which is going to go from 10 teams to 12 teams. There will be a draft lottery, which will help avoid teams tanking, a.k.a. the Baltimore Orioles. This will be the similar as the NHL, where if you're in the bottom so many, you're eligible for the draft lottery, and then you have a certain percentage of chance to win, and it looks like the uh, lottery balls that you might be familiar with where they pull it out, and that's what determines who will pick first second, third, and so on. Uh, No lost service time for this season, so everyone's still under their contract and can play out the season as it is. We also know there will be a universal DH. On those things that I've covered so far, Cameron, what do you like? Uh, Well, I really like that the minimum salary is going up uh, to $700,000. Um, now, just to let everyone know, that is for uh, the people that are on the roster, but in the minor leagues. Uh, the non-40-man roster, where I would have really liked uh, all of the minor leagues to get a pay raise, um, and they're only making, well, less than $20,000 a season. And that's because they're not protected by the federal uh, minimum wage laws in the uh, United States. So, um you know, I, I'm glad that some of the minor leaguers, uh, if they're on the 40-man roster, that they're getting a pay raise um, because it is quite significant, as you said, 22, uh, you know, plus percent. Um, you know, just as a first year, it would go from 46,600 to, um, you know, 57,200. So, uh, you know, I like that. Um, you know, people should get paid equitably uh, for the job that they're doing. So I'm, you know, really happy with that as well. 
Um, and then I also like that, uh, you know, the pre-arbitration uh, bonus rules um, being set at $50 million. Uh, when the negotiations first started, the MLBA, uh, they started at $105 million and the owners started at $10 million. Um, so like most negotiations, they uh, pretty much put it right down the middle, and that's, uh, you know, where they came to terms on that. And it, it's just great that some of the top players are going to be um, able to get a little bit more money um, if they are, you know, at the top of their game or at the top of the heap. Um, and I think that kind of goes a long way because in baseball, um, there's a few years where uh, the owners really got you as far as the amount of money that you make. So uh, to be able to incentivize some people to get a little bit more money, um, yeah, I think that it's uh, really good for that. So, yeah, off the top of my, um, you know, thought process, I, I would really like those two. Yeah, for me, I'm really excited about the expanded playoffs. Uh, I think anything we can do to bring viewers to this sport is going to be a good thing. I think I read somewhere recently that the average age of a baseball fan is like 57 or 58 years old. So Cameron, even yeah. you and I are still a bit too young for that, but uh, yeah, I Apparently. think any, anything we can do to, uh, to, to bring more teams into the playoff hunt, the better. And I really like the idea of the draft lottery because I really feel for teams like the Pittsburgh pirates or the, who else can we name who are usually at the bottom? Uh, yeah, Baltimore you know, the, Orioles, maybe? Yeah, Baltimore is another one. I, I really feel for those fan bases because it seems like their ownerships just don't feel that they have the money necessary to get or keep really good players on their teams. Uh, it, it's almost like those two teams are sort of a... a farm system playing in the major leagues that other teams poach from quite frankly and so for for the lottery to be in place for them to be able to get to hopefully a point where they can be respectable and fight for playoff spots i think would be good for those uh, lesser markets so i like that a lot i think what frustrates people um, when you look at that is that you see teams who are at the bottom building new stadiums because they receive money, you know, from the big horses who are at the mm -hmm. top and to help them keep afloat. And I think that's where we need to kind of avoid that. I think, you know, a new stadium is great. And when it's needed, it's, it's, it's a good thing to have. But when you do that consistently and you can make upgrades over and over again because you're at the bottom of the league. That's not the parody of the league that anyone's looking for. And I just think the lottery is a wonderful uh, thing to do. I also look at Tampa Bay Rays and say, you know what? They have one of the lowest payrolls in, in baseball and they are still the thorn in everyone's side in the AL, AL East. And yet they're still here. So when you draft properly and when you scout and all those things, it can work out really well. That is the end of our show for this week. I would like to thank Josh Watson, Cam Jenkins. I'd also like to thank our technical producer, Matt Agnew. Our technical supervisor is Paula Deneen, and our manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. Tune in on Sunday as Cameron and I 
along with the rest of the gang, will be broadcasting from the Madame Athletic Center for the Blind Hockey Championships. Talk to you then, and if not, we'll talk to you next week. Be safe and be well. Thank you.